VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello everyone, welcome along to the Ruck podcast from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm Alfie Reynolds and we promised you throughout the World Cup that we would be here, there and everywhere and this week's episode has a little flavour of that. We're going to hear from Will Kelleher and Alex Lowe who were watching England. I'm going to be catching up with Elgin Alderman after the Wales-Australia game and I also caught up with Peter O'Reilly in Paris as well following that amazing game between Ireland and South Africa. Currently, we are coming to you from Leon, ahead of the Wales-Australia game. So it's kind of different parts recorded at different moments, really, over this weekend. I've got Stephen Jones and Stuart Barnes alongside me in the media area. How are you, gents? Very good. You know we went to the same school? What, you two? Yeah, we were there together, weren't we? Baisley, but when Steve was there, it was uh, grammar, it was grammar school, school, and I was there as a comprehensive. Well, it went downhill when you got there. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Alfie. How many years were in between uh, that, then? Twenty. No, this rubbish. <laughs> you, you, I, I left just after you joined, or something like that. Let's go with that. So you can't be separated now either, given that we've still got you here on this mm. podcast. We thought an opportunity on the introduction of this week's episode to kind of catch up with you both, how you're finding the World Cup and your, I suppose, your general thoughts on the weekend that we've seen, because, or not just the weekend, but the, the third round of fixtures that we've seen. We've seen some incredibly one-sided games and some incredibly exciting and, and brilliant rugby as well. So whoever wants to pick it up, what, what, what have you made of it, Stuart? Well, obviously, uh, there's no doubt it's stating the obvious, but uh, Ireland versus South Africa sets the standard for the tournament from now on. Magnificent match. It could be the final again, uh, and that's what every team should aspire to. The other game I, I'd like to mention uh, was Portugal versus Georgia, mm. the draw. Mm. So, so we've had two really tight games, and Portugal played some great rugby, and uh, you know they were very unlucky not to win that. And, and I think they probably, are of the less established rugby countries, would be my pick so far in the tournament. I think they've done brilliantly. My, 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 my memories of this weekend, Alfie, are basically if you'd uh, seen, uh, if you were a visitor from Mars or you'd never been to a rugby match, if you saw England, Chile, and then you saw Ireland and South Africa, you'd have no idea it was the same sport. You mm. really wouldn't. I cannot describe to anyone who wasn't there the sensational atmosphere and also the, the sustained not violence, the sustained brutality of it, but brutality with a red card, a yellow card, or even a warning. It's proven it can happen. It was a magnificent game, maybe in, in all the context, the best I've ever seen. But uh, England, uh, you know, now people are saying Marcus Smith and etc. 
frankly, that's rubbish. Uh, they were playing against a t- team of big school boys, and anyone putting great credence by that, and God bless uh, Henry Arundel with five tries, but any professional rugby player, and even a lot of amateurs, would have scored all five. I would say, though, Steve, Henry Arundel... Um, He's one of those blokes. He reminds me very much of, of our old friend, Jerry Guscott. He has that certain aura about him, and, and things go to him. I remember Jerry when he sort of came into the blue from the blue to get a hat-trick against Romania. Hmm. Went on the Lions tour. He found his way into the test team, scored a try to level the series, played a major role in winning that series, and became just one of those blokes who things happened around him. And, and I'd watch Henry Arundel's young career, and... As those tries were going in, yeah, of course, you know, I think there was one chip and chase that was classy. The other four, mm. even I could have scored now. But he, he just has that certain something about him. And I think uh, England, if they're going to go further than their ability and form suggests, have to try someone who's a little bit different. And I think Arundel uh, gives them that. Because what's the point not risking it? What's the point asking Johnny May chase kicks up and down all day they're not going to beat Argentina uh, South Africa or will someone as conservative as Steve Borthwick pick him on that evidence no he wouldn't he he won't because he'll just he'll claim that the stats are there because everything's about stats and data but he will rightly say the opposition were not very good but it's not about picking him for that it's 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 a feel Jonesy and England's problem is they measure everything and there are things in rugby uh, that are beyond measurement. And that's why I talk about Arundel. I just sense he's got that Gus Gott thing. Things happen to him. And if England are going to get further than anyone expects, somebody's got to step up and do something different. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to hear from Alex Lowe and Will Kelleher on their debrief from England. They were our men at that game. Just picking up on what you mentioned, Barnsley, of the Portugal game. And you're right, that Portugal-Georgia game probably maybe goes under the radar because of some of the other fixtures that we've got this weekend. But... I think about that and I also think about South Africa losing to Ireland and there's a story in there, isn't there, of of kickers and the importance in the very tightest of games of having kickers that can knock over points. Perhaps a little unfair on on Portugal, but certainly the case for South Africa at the moment, isn't it? And for them going forward in the rest of this World Cup. Well, I wrote about uh, two weeks ago, I think, a piece about kickers, Steve, and I was sort of being the romantic that I am. I was hoping that South Africa could go all the way with uh, Marnie Libok. But when you get a 13-8 game, as fantastic as Steve rightly said it was, you can't afford not to kick your goals when you get the chance. You just cannot. And I think the interesting conundrum now is, what do you do with Pollard? I don't think Pollard's anywhere near as good a fly half. And South Africa have brilliant, breathless wingers and fullbacks, and you don't want to forget them. It's a question, maybe Pollard plays inside centre uh, with Damien Diolande shifting to 13, where his defensive press is good. So to me, that, that Jonesy is one of the big stories that comes out of that epic game. It, it is, but t- you know, tough luck. Razzie Erasmus and all that lot, they are famous for keeping every avenue closed yeah. and, and, and just sorting every little detail. They didn't pick a goal kicker, so tough. Not, not our fault or their fault or it's not Ireland's fault. No, it's just interesting though, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. By the way, Leslie never said you were a big romantic, your wife. only when it's the oval ball (laughs) final word on South Africa as well there was a lot of a huge amount of talk in the build up to the game of the 7-1 bench split and in Mm. terms of the hype of the match it was quite an enjoyable thing to get involved in I just wonder whether that was a tactic that in the end for South Africa maybe 
backfired a little bit, as you say, Steve, in terms of not having a goal kicker on the bench. And also, I just look at them losing Sia Khaleesi and Eben Etzebeth relatively early in terms of when they brought some of those replacements on. That's a, a key part of their leadership in that team that they lost and I think is... You know that's quite key in a game like that against Ireland. I think I think that the the, the seven-one split, Alfie, is t- for them to be sort of threatening and say, "Oh, look, look, we got these huge giants to come on." Seven-one is a tiny, tiny proportion of of backs available, and I I I think that they're just trying to be a bit of a it's a bit of a bit of a pose. It's psychological and, bullying, isn't yeah, it? Steve? Yeah, it, it it is. And I tell you what, if, if they lo- if they they lose a few backs, you know, in a collision or something like that, suddenly they look ridiculous. Because you're going to have to have Bongi and Banambi in the centre. Yeah, and Quagga Smith. And, well, exactly. <laughs> well, mind you, that's a bit, I wouldn't want like to mark them, but they're not, <laughs> not exactly talented, are they? Gents, great to catch up with you. Let's. Uh, we're going to hear from Alex and Will fairly shortly, but I think given the fact that the real spectacle of this weekend was that game we mentioned in Paris, which was absolutely brilliant. The morning after that, so Sunday morning, I caught up with our man Peter O'Reilly to look back on a fantastic, brilliant, bruising win for Ireland over South Africa. Well, Peter, good to speak to you. You've had a little bit of time now to digest what we witnessed last night. A brilliant game, a great win for Ireland. What's your reflections on the significance of that win and the significance of that moment in the context of this Ireland team and them potentially, maybe at the end of October, aiming for for that World Cup trophy? Well, I think it's a big step step for this Irish team because uh, one of the the planks that Farrell has built this sort of 16-game winning run on is... Uh, resilience, being able to deal with anything that's thrown at you. And uh, we had that last night. You have this phenomenal atmosphere, this sense that there are actually more than 30,000 Irish supporters in the in the stadium. And then you have what appears to be stage fright at the beginning. So you've got, I think, the first four lineouts. First four, yeah. Yeah, go South Africa's way. First two scrums, I think, were there was, there was a penalty and a free kick, uh, as, as I remember. And you have this sense that Ireland want to go for the jugular. They've gone to the corner at the, for their first kickable penalty and everything backfires. And um, it just seems like disastrous. So, but you, I suppose what you understand from, from watching them is that they managed to, uh, to keep thinking positively to withstand that that really dodgy period around 20 25 minutes when there's a scrum on the Ireland near the Ireland line Sexton is down getting uh, getting treatment all that sort of thing and I suppose what I take from it is that that resilience seems to kind of feed upon itself and and, and keep growing or um, there's a, there's an incredible self-belief there and, and the other thing which you take away is just the the fact that Ireland can feed off that support that they have. Uh, it really was, you know, you were there, Alfie. It yeah. was it was phenomenal. Sexton was asked about it afterwards. He said, you know, thirty thousand had been the estimated figure. It felt more like sixty. Tyg Byrne said it was seventy, and it was it was so different from like the last time we were at the Stade de France. The uh, the guy in the PA was trying to whip up the French fans during a Six Nations game against Ireland. Uh, there was no need for any whipping up yesterday. The fans and the team seem to feed off each other. And yet the team is also also remarkably self-reliant, which uh, is their defining characteristic at the moment, I would say. There was a moment in the second half when the fields of Athen Rye was being sung around the Stade de France and it almost kind of like hairs on your neck standing up 
moment for me. And it's why I ask about the significance. And look, I know that as has been well documented, Ireland are on a horrible side of the draw. They're going to face a tough team, whoever they face in a quarter final. But I don't know, for me, and maybe as a bit more of a, a neutral, I just kind of looked at that result and it felt to me like it was it's possible we'll look back on that and I know Ireland have gone to New Zealand and won a series there they've done Mm -hmm. a Six Nations Grand Slam the winning streak you mentioned but that could be a result in terms of in this tournament that we look back on and say that was the moment where this group and a lot of this fan base really believed that they would end up being world champions what you would take from from watching Andy Farrell and Johnny Sexton at the press conference was their determination for it just to be what you call it a step along the way yeah an important moment absolutely and psychologically a huge moment and that was what I think what Farrell kind of jumped upon was when somebody asked a question about about resilience you know he um he he saw the importance in that what I noticed about what you noticed about Sexton was how sober he was about the whole thing that they would look back on it as as a fantastic occasion and an important moment but mainly they would look at how they can get better because he saw the flaws and I'm sure they also Ireland also saw the fact that they they did enjoy some luck that they there was generosity from the South Africans who aren't known for their generosity um <laughs> you know the 11 points I think they left out there off the off the kicking tee if you were looking at it as an Ireland supporter objectively you wouldn't want the team to be getting too carried away. Yes, they had to go out and do a lap of honour, but the message coming from Sexton afterwards was very much about you know how, how this can be improved upon um, and just a, a step along the, the journey. And you mentioned the, the kind of game we saw earlier, obviously the four lineouts that they didn't win at the start of the game and everyone was kind of worrying about that. It struck me almost, when I was looking ahead to the game, I was thinking, okay, how do Ireland win here? And I was thinking they're going to be playing at a lightning quick pace and that attack that's so cohesive is going to make real inroads into the spring box. One of perhaps the most pleasing things, I don't know from an Irish perspective, was that they kind of won the arm wrestle. It it wasn't that sort of game. It was a game in many ways that you might have thought would have suited South Africa, but Ireland still, as you say, had the resilience to end up being on the right side of the result. Yeah, I mean, it was as violent a game mm. as I've seen. It was a it was a street fight, and I think Ireland had prepared themselves mentally for that. And I I think that's they have a an advantage in having Farrell as their coach there because those players who who um, who remember him as a rugby league player, remember him as a warrior. And, um, you know, not just as a, uh, as in terms of his team, but also in his persona. And um, I think Ireland, they admitted it afterwards. They had talked a good bit about this game during the summer. They had departed from that next game sort of mentality. They knew this was a, a little, uh, a mini final, if you like, because they knew they had the, a two-week gap afterwards for the Scotland game. They could give it absolutely everything. And um, you could see it in terms of the physical shape of some some, some of the players uh, coming into the tournament. They they knew that they um, they had to be able to withstand the, this, that sort of enormous physical threat that the South Africans bring. Do you think that's, sorry to interrupt, do you think that's quite an important thing here as well, is that if you look at Ireland over the years, and maybe not so much with, with this current team, with what they've been doing, but certainly if you go back a few years, that physical battle, those kind of big games was somewhere where Ireland sometimes came up short. And even if we want to look at it domestically and you look at Leinster coming up short in in particular the Champions Cup, it was always being met by a big physical pack that they yeah. couldn't get on top of. Yeah. So from a psychological point of view, do you think that's quite significant that they, they match the spring box? Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, Ireland is built primarily on, on a, you know, a Leinster base, that theme has been annoyingly prevalent for the for the Leinster players. They hear a lot about La Rochelle. They hear about Saracens in a knockout game a couple of years ago as well. So um, 
I think actually, you know, that's where that's definitely been been a, an important point for them. And I I thought they gave as good as they got. Obviously, there were there were times when, for, for example, when the when the the first four kind of uh, South African forwards came off the bench, you could see the difference that made in the scrum. Uh, and some of the hits were absolutely sickening. But Ireland, you know, they gave as good as they got, and I think they would. They would look back and enjoy that moment when Etzebeth took it to them and towards the right corner and he got held up by James Lowe and everybody piled in. They got the turnover. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I think traditionally Irish teams might have looked to have found a way around the, the physical size thing. But now, like if you actually looked at the stats before the game, in terms of inches, yes, South Africa have taller men, but in terms of kilograms or, or pounds and stones, uh, there wasn't that much of a difference mm. and Ireland were determined to win to at least equal them on, on the physical stakes that Etzebeth hit felt like a moment I mean that whipped up the crowd that was awesome it did but it, it you know it wasn't that, the, the nature of the game was that the moments that you thought were defining and game turning weren't, weren't yeah because things were like it's I was looking looking back at the at the other games in the tournament for a points aggregate, and South Africa have been involved in the two lowest scoring games. Now, one of them was against Scotland, which turned out to be one sided. But it was what was lovely about it was that even though there were only twenty one points and only two tries, it was it was you know it was probably the best. It's bruising, yeah. It was bruising, and it was fascinating, and yeah. it was, there was so much to it. So you've been flying back and forth, Peter, and mm-hmm. obviously. A- you know, as you say, Andy Farrell, Johnny Sexton, that team say this is just another victory on 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 the journey. They they don't want to hype it up too much, understandably. So, what's the mood like from what you've gauged in Ireland? It was interesting. Afterwards, last night, I went to an Irish bar not far from where we are here, actually, in your hotel, and kind of was asking some Irish fans, like, "Look, what what a victory! What an occasion! Do you do you believe yet?" And they were very much kind of like. Well, look, we're a good side, but you know we could end up losing to the All Blacks or France in a quarterfinal or on a tough side of the draw. We'll wait and see. Is that generally the sentiment amongst Irish fans, or is that kind of that real dare to dream mentality yet? Oh, listen, it's yeah, it's 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 dominating. Certainly, it's dom- it's dominating the uh, the sports news agenda. You know, Irish rugby still kind of rates as as fourth, the fourth most popular sport in Ireland. But when you get a a national team going particularly well and a, a sense of optimism everybody gets on board um yeah it's uh i mean it's i find it fascinating when you go on the metro to to games um and you you sense this kind of this kind of overwhelming excitement and you listen to the voices and the conversations you earwig on them and you realize that a lot of these people aren't necessarily you know people who are rugby fans 52 weeks of the year they're a their event junkies yeah. uh but that's okay and um you know everybody at home wants a good news story because it's so france is so accessible the numbers you know the, that those sort of numbers will keep traveling and uh the excitement will keep growing well it was brilliant last night brilliant brilliant occasion at the stade de france i personally wouldn't be surprised if we end up seeing that match up again in a final but there's a lot of uh, games to go until we get to that point peter appreciate it perfect time now for for Ireland with that with that break the fixture list is is probably in a really tough pool has worked out pretty nicely for them yeah I think they had they knew they could give absolutely everything towards that game last night and the time that they now have off is precious not just in terms of of rehab remarkably there appear to be no injuries of uh, no significant injuries but uh, when Tig Byrne was talking in the mix zone afterwards, he was saying, you know, yeah, we get to this precious time with our families. It's not like we're going drinking beer for three days. 
it's all about rehabbing and, and, and looking forward to the Scotland game. There's no... Um, I mean, I remember a, a similar game in, t- in 2015, a big pool match, a big a big occasion at the Millennium when Ireland beat France uh, significantly or comfortably enough. And uh, there was this great excitement afterwards, which was punctured by the news that we had significant injuries and a, a suspension with Sean O'Brien. Um, it was a much more sober response uh, from the Ireland players and management. Um, they realised that they're fortunate to have this time to recover. Um, but it's all about Scotland now. Peter, thanks very much. Cheers, Alfie. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Good to speak to Peter following Ireland's win. What a result that is for Andy Farrell's side. Next up, let's head over and turn our attention to England. Let's hear from Will Kelleher and Alex Lowe. They were both in attendance as England thumped Chile. So they speak about Marcus Smith, Henry Arundel, the various selection dilemmas that will now be posed to Steve Borthwick and his coaches. And just in general, they looked back on the game. You will notice here a few technical issues this week with a bit of Will's line. You shouldn't notice it too much. But that just explains why at times he sounds a little different to how you would normally hear him in all his glory. But over to Will and Alex. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, this is the first Rockouts you've not done poolside, Alex. It's actually really chilly out here in Neil, isn't it? Yeah, but we do have a massive table football table, as in it's about three times the normal length of a table football table. Yeah, we're on the balcony of our hotel in Lille, which is a lovely city I've not been to before. Cobble streets, quite Belgian, very now. Yeah, no, it's cool. Our hotel's wicked as well. We came back last night to watch the Ireland South Africa game after England's in a in the hotel bar. The rugby on the screens and the hip hop DJ it was uh, it was great. So we obviously watched England beat Chile seventy one nil. I think I was saying to people that England needs to score fifty points and not concede, and they went and got seventy one and didn't concede. So. They've, they've built throughout this tournament, haven't they? It's, it's, it's been frustrating covering England because you can never quite tell when, when the real England will stand up and quite who they are. They had an awful summer campaign, um, only to reveal afterwards that, that, say, the Ireland game, that the players had trained the equivalent of a test match on the Tuesday. So, of course, they were they were fatigued. And they have won these three games in, in different ways. They, they found a way to win against Argentina, their strategy worked against Japan. It was not a pretty strategy uh, in sort of sultry conditions in Nice, but it was effectively to just outlast Japan, grind them down, and then throw Marcus Smith on with 20 minutes to go and, and get the bonus point. Yeah, they had a lot of people switching off at half-time at home, but it, it was a strategy that, that worked, and I'm afraid that's a bit where England are at the moment. They, they can't worry about 
aesthetics. They just have to get performances. And by that, they they mean executing a game plan and, and winning. What was interesting for me against Chile last night was the first 20 minutes, Chile predictably spirited uh, to fire. They've had an amazing run to be at this World Cup and we're an incredibly proud team. But England, again, they tried to say that this was because of, of Chile, but it wasn't. They blew two or three golden chances and we were sitting in that in the stand going, my goodness, this England's red zone conversion rate, they're, they're living down to expectations here. They cannot get over the line. And it's just simple mistakes, but they looked anxious. You know, they looked like a, a batsman who needs a score, who's just trying to get himself back into form and he's just fiddling around outside off stump and he can't get it off the square. Once they'd hit the first boundary, once they'd found the first try, admittedly against Chile and a tiring Chile, uh, they just found a bit of a groove and, you know, limited opposition and all that. But I, I really think that's what this team needed. It felt, watching it and talking to them afterwards, like there was a, there was a psychological hurdle almost to overcome in just understanding that, that they can click and they can play and trust the skills in an environment where there wasn't really any pressure. And you just hope now, England are not going to play like that against Samoa and certainly not going to play like that in the, in the knockout stages. But what's critical for the way that England will play when they go back to a more kick-dominated territory game is that when they get the chances, they have to be able to finish them. And they haven't been doing that. And what I'm hoping from England's perspective is that running in those tries and trusting in themselves might sharpen them so that when the chances do come, they're, they're more likely to take them. The one really interesting selection was Marcus Smith at 15, which dominated the debate at the back end of last week. And I suppose, do do we say now that he's properly done enough to force himself into a 23 because he gives England an option when maybe they are a bit clunky, that he can just sort of spark something or do something? Like if you saw his kick and chase try that kind of was just a bit of individual skill mm. sometimes you're going to need in a really tight game I think of all the things that, that they were trying to get out of this game that would have had an immediate bearing on the rest of this World Cup it was Marcus Smith I thought Theo Dan played brilliantly possibly England's best player when he was on the field we know he's in their, their first choice 23 Smith hadn't been particularly with what we suspect is, is Borthwick's desire to play Ford and foul together. I think what we've seen in the first couple of games with how narrow England have played and the boos that, that rung out in Nice were because they were executing this tight game plan, but they weren't they weren't even looking at, at options. The boos happened when they were, they won a turnover, it was a chance to run it. They didn't even look and just kicked it and then kicked it dead. So it's one one thing playing that game plan, another thing doing it badly and kicking it dead. They haven't had that second pair of eyes, that properly natural creative player. Oli Lawrence has a great talent, footwork, handling, but he's not a natural fly-half, nor is Elliot Daly. So I think they've missed that. I still think they'll go with Ford and Farrell in the knockouts, so they'll have the, those two pairs of eyes, the sort of the Mike Cat, Will Greenwood to Johnny Wilkinson back in 03. But I, I do think that the experiment, because it was an experiment, because he'd never done it before, of playing Marcus Smith at 15 uh, was worthwhile because... I now think England would be confident in including him put on the bench in a knockout game for exactly the reason that you say that when he operates further out, not only has he got the vision of a, of a fly-half, but he's got the acceleration and the, the footwork of, a, of an outside back. And admittedly, against more limited defences, he looked a real threat in that space out wide in a way that England don't have really in any of their other fallbacks. Elliot Daly is a different style of runner. 
quick, but more angles, whereas Smith is much more elusive and, and harder to pin down. And out of that game, as well as the, the, the sharpness in attack and the psychology we talked about, that knowing now that, that Smith can deliver in that in those wider spaces, I think England will see that as a massive plus for them because it gives them another option. Why don't we park that for a second? So let's talk about Arundel because he's possibly being frustrated as he would be as a talented young player who's just desperate to tear in and, and play in a World Cup, watching the team play. He never targeted this World Cup. He wrote in his own little diary when he was a kid, I want to play in the 27 World Cup, so he's already four years ahead of that. Alex, what does it say about the bloke who, again, the caveat being Chile, where you wait around for his chance, he does get it and scores five tries. Yeah, there were a couple of, of tap-ins early on which which would have helped and mind you they still take some catching as Semi Rodrandro will will tell you that you know you can still you can still miss an open goal from a tap in and he didn't but what I liked about his performance and I, I felt that in that warm-up game against Wales he let the game go past him a bit I mean he had that kind of careless yellow card but I felt he was a bit of a passenger that day not that he was overawed because he's played on big stages played test matches but it, it's almost like he didn't quite back himself to get involved and, and again how much of that is game plan and, and all that. But one of the things that, that uh, Steve Borthwick was asked before the game was whether Arundel needs to go and get himself involved more, kind of in the way that Chris Ashton would. You know, use that pace, read the game, pop up on the shoulder and explode through the gap. Or whether it's the responsibility of the team to get him opportunities. Now, clearly it's it's both of those. You know, We we saw against Japan that Johnny May didn't touch the ball till the 42nd minute of the game. And he is a, a wing who, who's quite comfortable roaming in field and looking for opportunities what I liked about Arundel yesterday was as he grew into the game so his game expanded he did just score tap-ins actually he's my favorite try was the one that you and I were watching this watching this move pan out together and we saw you you alerted it first you said he's like Arundel he's coming off his wing he's moving from right to left as play swept right to left and then as play went back the other and he was he was probing he was trying to find a a spot on Marcus Smith's shoulder and it didn't quite come off. And the moment play swept back the other way, him and Smith together curved back round and down, then down on the right-hand side, Smith put him through for the try. And I just thought that that showed like he was growing into the game, like he felt part of things, like a bit more confidence perhaps. I think there's you know, there's an experience issue with Pedri Arundel. He's played like what, 30 games of pro rugby. He's, he's a rookie. And he could equal or better the World Cup records out of nowhere. I mean, who knows? I think it would be... I think it would be a stretch. I don't. I don't see him playing in the quarterfinals, so maybe Samoa is his one chance. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that would be on a list. On eight tries would would be quite. That would be quite some achievement for him to to be on that list. It's, I think there's an enormous amount of potential there in him. Uh, he's a smart bloke. He'll understand how to grow his game. And you know, he's coming over to to France to play at uh, Racing next season, where he'll be playing outside Joshua Tuasova, Gail Fiku. I think Christian Wade could be a really good influence on him. So, yeah, there's a lot for him to still go and achieve, you know, which which is no bad place to be after you've just scored five tries in a test match. So it's it's a weird experience for us covering England now because they don't play for 11 days or so until two weekends time to play against Samoa. So both of us are going to have a few days off, but I'm back to the 2K for a little bit and then we're going to have to waste around a bit. It's a funny old tournament, this, isn't it? Like we've, they went off with the Rockets then it's kind of muddled out a bit. Then you had Isla South Africa, which raised everyone's pulses enormously. And now we've got this kind of odd... Yeah, although we, can't, we won't talk about the game because it hasn't happened yet and the pod will be out. But 
the Eddie Jones circus just continues. Um, woke up this morning to a story from Tom Deeson in the Sydney Morning Herald revealing that Eddie Jones had a Zoom interview with Japan on the eve of the World Cup ahead of Australia's opening game against Georgia. So the rugby might might have a little dip for a while while the Ryder Cup's on and the Cricket World Cup looms, but the Eddie Jones circus just keeps rumbling on. Yeah, and we had a bit of a circus in the mix zone on the... Oh yeah, bring on the bit. I was going to make a joke about us being forcibly removed from our hotel, but I'm not sure that we'll ever have got it. But I've never seen Will Kelleher more angry in my life. He was doing an interview with Henry Arundel, approved by the RFU, there was no skullduggery going on, and the uh, heavy-handed mob of Mick Zone... No, they were luckily for you. <laughs> but essentially what happened was I was interviewing Henry Arundel for a Sunday Faker interview we do every time there's a match. We usually speak to the man of the match, and... And during the chat, I was forcibly removed from the conversation by two f- guys who worked for the French organising committee, literally dragged out of the room. It was extraordinary, actually, to, to witness. And I turned, I've, I've got the recording on my phone of what happened, and I think I turned it off before the four-letter words started. <laughs> on a more serious note, I, we were talking about it on the pod last week, of the sort of clunkiness and oddness of some of the, the World Cup. And I, I do think there is a bit of an issue that some fans are experiencing with quite a lot of hostility um the security situation's odd it seems like a real reaction to what happened at the Champions League final I think it's both a reaction to the Champions League but also this is a dry run for the Olympics as well for France so in fact one of the, one of our colleagues had a mate in the stand yesterday who sent him a picture of a of a sniper a balaclavaed sniper in the eaves of the of the roof of the stadium yeah, there, there, are, there are challenges in this tournament which we haven't experienced before. It's a bit behind the curtain. It's a bit, who cares about what the media go through, I mean, which is perfectly fair and true. So I'm more worried about fan experience. It's it's all a bit unpredictable, isn't it? We had the Marseille, I won't call it a crush, because it wasn't a crush, but there was a risk of it outside the... Because they're checking tickets twice and then checking everyone's water bottle in 35-degree heat to make sure it complies with tour, tournament sponsors. I mean, nonsense. And then there were tram issues in Nice... Just hope it settles. Hope it settles because the, you know, you saw the scenes at the Stade de France last night with the Ireland fans, and the last thing you ever want. And we're here with some, you know, some kids in our hotel here who've obviously come over with their parents, and you want them to have just just a you know a once in a lifetime experience or a first in a lifetime, hopefully, that they want to keep coming back and you know to be a sort of to meet sniffer dogs and crushes on the tram and that kind of thing. You just you just hope it settles a little bit. I don't want to put too much doom and gloom on it. There were thousands of England fans in the square here yesterday, loving it, having a great time in the in the sun, singing and and enjoying themselves. And that is the main. I don't get the wrong impression. Like it's not, it's not all bad. They're just organisational things, which you know we've experienced a lot of these big events, a lot of World Cups, and it's just not quite as as it should be. But hopefully it'll settle pretty quickly. We better leg it on trains. I'm back to the two key or down to the off to the Eddie Jones Circus. Yeah. yeah. And then we'll see what happens to that game, see what happens with England. And, but for now, from a, a chilly Lille, we'll hand it back to Alfie and everyone else. But for now, thank you. Goodbye. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Alex. Good to hear from both of them in Lille as England beat Chile 71-0. Up next on the Ruck, we head over to the final game of the weekend. An amazing victory for Wales over Australia. 40 points to six. And later on into the early hours of Monday morning, I caught up with Elgin Alderman, who was watching the game. Well, Elgin, what a result for Wales. 40 points to six. 
Did you have any idea that that might be coming? I think we all came into this game thinking that Wales were the favourites and should win. But no matter what state the opposition are in, and Australia are in a bit of a state on and off the field at the moment, you never quite expect to be watching Wales dispatch a big team like Australia and just seem so comfortable in doing it. And yeah, the scoreline reads 46 and that's what the game was like. It was a 46 type of game. The Wales were excellent in so many facets of play. You know, during that first half, Australia had so much ball and Wales just soaked it up quite easily. And then when they went up the, the other end of the field, Gareth Hanscombe, who came on in the 11th minute for Dan Bigger, slotted six penalties, a drop goal. They just kept the scoreboard ticking over. And then when they had rare try-scoring chances, they took them, starting with a brilliant move in the third minute of the match, then two more later on, and they just built that score. And by the end, it was a, a record win over, over Australia. And understandably, an absolutely delighted Wales camp. I've just been in the mix zone chatting to a few of the players. They've all got beers in hand. They're smiling. They've got a break now. They can enjoy this win. I mean, it is, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, given where Wales were coming into the World Cup, the way in which they've got themselves through these opening three games and the position that they've put themselves is brilliant, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. And you, you use the word credit. They, it felt like in the week Wales were building for this match thinking that they weren't getting enough credit for what they did against Fiji, what they did against Portugal. And in both of those games subsequent events have made people realise what Wales achieved in those games. They beat Fiji and the people thought, oh, they clung on. But then they, people watched Fiji beat Australia quite comfortably. Then they only snuck the bonus point with a hugely changed team against Portugal. They snuck the bonus point in the final play of the game. And then people watched Portugal almost beat Georgia. Now, of course, Georgia aren't, you know titans of the game they're not in the six nations but people didn't expect portugal to be good enough to to do that and they, and they came so close to doing that so they're getting that credit now and having won this match by 34 points that they'll be getting plenty of credit as you say they've got 13 days until they take on georgia they know they're into the quarterfinals they've been talking this week about how they're a band of brothers josh adams was almost welling up when he was talking about the squad the day before the match took place. You saw that little huddle after the game where they all put their hands in the middle. They've had family members this week. They've been talking about who they do it for. And suddenly, yes, like you say, from a position where people were talking about Wales and Australia being quite a similar position with new head coaches in Warren Gatland and and Eddie Jones and they've both gone through a bit of pain in the in the early matches Australia lost their first five Wales only won one of their first five under Warren Gatland but how quickly they've turned it around and people always thought Gatland might turn it around to the World Cup and obviously you know we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves but from where they were in the Six Nations with strike action and finishing fifth to be in the quarterfinals with a game to spare and having just beaten Australia 46, you know, Wales supporters will, will be in dreamland tonight in Lyon. Yeah, look, there are various caveats that we can throw at it that some people listening might say, yes, it's the weaker side of the draw. Yes, there are much better teams in the competition that at this moment in time, similarly with England, you wouldn't expect Wales to be able to beat. But as you say, given where they were and watching it tonight as well, I felt like you could see the development of that game plan in that the set piece was rock solid. The mall was very, very good as well. And that strike move as well for the first try of the game where they just cut Australia open. Yes, there are going to be much 
tougher and better teams in the World Cup than, than Wales, but they are improving, which I think when you come into a World Cup in the position they were in, that's what the fans want to see. Throughout all of Wales' troubles in recent times, you've looked at the names on the team sheet and you've thought, there's so much quality there, they, they could be a good team. Yeah, like you said... Jack, Jack Morgan's break for the first try was just slime. A, a word on Jack Morgan. Who I was going to mention him, yeah. Yet again, just phenomenal. He is now, you know, he was right there amongst it against Fiji when Wales made a, a World Cup record 253 tackles. He did weights and conditioning on the morning of the Portugal game because he wasn't supposed to be playing. And five minutes before Andy gets called up to, to start, plays 80 minutes and wins man of the match six days after the Fiji game. Eight days later, there he is again, blood streaming from his nose. You could hear Wayne Barnes on the ref mic saying, oh, you know, that's going to look good in the morning, all that. You know, Jack Morgan was phenomenal. Talupe Faletau. Gareth Davies know, as well. Gareth Davies as well. You know, Faletau was one of the two. In fact, Faletau and Gareth Anscombe, who were the two players that were picked for this World Cup, having not played in the summer series because of injuries. They were brought here on faith. Anscombe, who played in the 2015 World Cup and was an injured in the 2019 you know and was out of the game for 26 months and had to have his, his leg realigned to, to make sure he could play rugby again walk again let alone play rugby again they were two of the stars tonight as well Anscombe coming on in the 11th minute for bigger drop goal six penalties conversion Falata running at a golden brick wall in a way we haven't seen Tolupa Falata maybe do for quite a few years for all his excellence you you don't quite see him run in that style that number eights do. Gareth Davis, who's something of a World Cup specialist, just like we saw him four years ago in Japan, blitzing off that line, making interceptions, getting on Jack Morgan's shoulder for that first try. Everyone from, from 1 to 23 in that Wales team can, can be delighted with, with how they fared in Leon. Let's look ahead then. If everything goes to plan and there's no upsets, Wales all finished top of the group. They're most likely going to face Argentina, who haven't looked great. Is does semi-final become the expectation now for Wales? I think it has to be. Obviously, like I said, you can't get too far ahead of yourselves because six months ago, getting to the quarterfinals would be regarded as an achievement, frankly. And the fact that that is now secured and that people think that yeah, they Wales should beat Georgia, unless we forget it was a defeat by Georgia within the past year that, that led to the departure of Wayne Pivak and the arrival of Warren Gatland. So it's never a sure thing, although the Wales of, the Wales of now are a far different uh, proposition than the Wales of last November. Suddenly you are looking at a match against Argentina. Now, obviously, you can't ride off Argentina because despite the fact that they were woeful against England, they are a very fickle team that we've seen beat New Zealand majestically mm. in, in recent years. So it's not as simple as turning up and Argentina will fold, but if they can play with the accuracy that they have done against Australia, then certain, you know, maybe France, Ireland, South Africa are still a cut above, but every other team's there for the taking. And when it comes to a World Cup semi-final and when Wales have belief and momentum, which is such an important thing for them, suddenly you're wondering how far they can go. So brilliant for Wales. Huge congratulations to them. I want to finish, though, on a word on Australia, Elgin. I mean, they were awful. And it is a side that you feel, where on earth do they go from here in terms of Eddie Jones as the head coach and in terms of an inexperienced team that surely their confidence is going to take a pretty big whack from the experience at this World Cup? Absolutely. You know, 
Australia have never not made the quarterfinals. In nine tournaments, they've reached six semifinals and they've won the tournament twice. This, this just doesn't happen. So to lose 40 points to six the week after you've lost to Fiji for the first time since 1954, okay, they're not out yet, but everyone is expecting the Fiji we've seen to not have too much trouble against Georgia and Portugal. Of course, things can happen. We've seen Fiji lose to Uruguay four years ago. So they're not quite gone yet, but it'll take almighty upsets for them to stay in here. And you're now looking at a situation where, yes, three senior players in Quade Cooper, Bernard Foley and Michael Hooper have been left at home. We've had Carter Gordon, 22-year-old, entrusted at number 10 and now dropped for this, to the bench for this key game with Ben Donaldson. We've had the, the, report, the bombshell reports on the morning of the match that... Um, Eddie Jones has reportedly had a Zoom interview for the Japan head coach role. So you do think, you know, four years away when Australia are hosting the tournament, when Eddie Jones is contracted to coach the Wallabies until... Lions tour in two years as well. Lions tour in two years. That's looking a very long way away. Australia Rugby Union is in a bit of a pickle and, and Warren Gatland addressed that at length in the in, in the mix zone afterwards uh, sorry in his press conference afterwards when he was talking about the similarities between the difficulties Wales and and the regional and provincial setups have between between Wales and Australia you know there are things coming up for Australia like they still rugby Australia still have the pulling power to sign Joseph Swali'i perhaps the hottest 20 year old in, in NRL one of the you know one of the the best talents in rugby league so even though you've got Aussie rules and an NRL battling with union and frankly you know well above union at the moment there is still that sense that there is a bit of pulling power because of the global impact of union but right now you'd have to think this is the Wallabies' lowest ebb, certainly of the professional era. Really, really quickly, were you in the Eddie Jones press conference? And, and, and if so, what was, the, what was the mood in that? And what did he say about those reports saying that he had a, a Zoom call for the Japan job? When he was asked about the Japan head coach interview that is report, that reportedly took place on, on August 25th, he said, I don't know what you're talking about, mate, twice. And he said he was committed to Australia, to coaching Australia twice. And then when Dave Parecki, the captain, was asked if you know, this news had been a big distraction for them, Eddie Jones chimed in of his own accord and said, he, he, he said I really take umbrage with this line of question. You're, you're, you're questioning my commitment to the role. And if you're going to carry on asking questions along this line, then I'm going to excuse myself from here. So, you know, it, it, he's been tetchier, but he was clearly, you know, he, he wasn't in the mood to, to take it lying down. And as he had done to Rugby Australia early in the day, he denied reports that he had had the interview. So we've we've still got that to come out in the wash after this. Yeah, well, we'll see how that one rumbles on. We will obviously cover it here on the Ruck. Elgin, great chat to chat to you. Been an eventful few weeks for for Wales. Absolutely, the the, the deadline write up of the the Fiji game when they were one semi Randrandra caught pass away from having a conversion to possibly lose to the bonus point in the last play against Portugal to the to the crowds of of red fans singing in Bordeaux Lyon and Nice in between as well yeah it's been quite a few three weeks and everyone's got a bit of a break now those of us covering and the players themselves and 13 13 day gap before before that Georgia game and well obviously the work the heart there's still plenty of hard work to come but that, that Wales band of brothers, as they refer to themselves, will, will look forward to a few days rest and uh, enjoy what they've achieved thus far. So thanks for listening to The Ruck this week, everyone. It's been 
a bit of a stitch together episode various chats with all our writers across France we promised you that this was what it was going to be like throughout the World Cup I think we've delivered on it this week one final thing that we hadn't had a chance to mention so far partly because it happened so long ago that we didn't quite get round to it earlier on in the episode, but that is the situation regarding Antoine Dupont, the French captain, the superstar, the poster boy of this World Cup, getting absolutely clattered in that French victory over Namibia. As we understand it, he has a fractured cheekbone. The French are hoping to have him back in time for the quarterfinals, which is quite a remarkable turnaround given that at first it looked like his participation in this World Cup would be done. So it's a situation we will continue to monitor on the ruck and across the Times and the Sunday Times. Such a massive story. And I'm sure everyone really would agree that we want to see him back out there, particularly if the French are to get to the latter stages of their home World Cup. So thanks again for listening to The Ruck this week. Just a reminder that the latest episode of How to Win the World Cup, Will Kelleher's chat with a member of each winning World Cup team. The next episode will be out on Thursday and we're up to 2007. Fury Dupria is the man that he has a chat with. So hear all about that Mark Cueto. Was it a try? Wasn't it a try? And the Springbok victory in France in O. Seven. That's out on Thursday. We'll be back next Monday, so make sure you follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, and also wherever you do get your podcast from. If you can leave us a review, preferably a five star one, then that would be much appreciated as well. See you next time. As you're listening to me. Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.